0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today I'll we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with what Ukraine's President Zelensky described today as a long and meaningful conversation between him and China's President Xi Jinping, in which she promised to send a peace delegation to Kiev, apparently pledging that China would remain neutral in the conflict, with Xi saying Beijing, quote, will neither watch the fire from the other side, nor add fuel to the fire, let alone take advantage of the crisis to profit. Joining us to discuss this and assess whether the Biden administration does not want Ukraine to completely humiliate Putin with its forthcoming offensive is Charles Kupchan, who was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He is now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as special assistant to President Obama for national security. He is the author of Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order, and How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace, and his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Then we'll look into the civil case in a Manhattan federal court, where Donald Trump is being sued by E. Jean Carroll, who claims he raped her in a dressing room in Bergdorf Goodman's Lingerie Department in 1996. Joining us to discuss today's dramatic testimony from Eugene Carroll is Deborah Turkheimer, a professor of law at Northwestern University School of Law and a former assistant district attorney in Manhattan. She teaches and writes in the areas of criminal law and feminist legal theory, and she is the co-author of the casebook Feminist Jurisprudence: Cases and Materials, and the author of numerous articles on rape and domestic violence. Her latest book is Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers, and we will discuss her article at the New York Times, The Importance of E. Jean Carroll's Lawsuits Against Donald Trump. Then finally, we'll look into yesterday's summit involving 20 countries in Bogota, Colombia, aimed at finding a way out of the deterioration of Venezuela into a failed authoritarian state from which 7 million Venezuelan refugees have fled, many into Colombia. Joining us to discuss the antics of the former Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaidó, who showed up uninvited and was put on a plane to the U.S., is David Smaldi a professor of human relations at Tulane University, program co-chair of the Latin American Studies Association, and a senior fellow at the Washington Office of Latin America, where he specializes in Venezuela and moderates their Venezuelan politics and human rights blog. He has researched Venezuela for the past 30 years, living there most of that time, and he is the co-author of the forthcoming book The Paradox of Violence in Venezuela, Revolution, Crime, and policing during chavismo, and before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners, whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and furor. Your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Charles Kupchan, who was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown's University School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security. He's the author of The End of the American Era, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Geopolitics of the 21st Century, Power in Transition, the Peaceful Change of International Order, and How Enemies Become Friends, the Sources of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Charles Kupchin.
1: Good to be back with you, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Charles. And what do you make of today's development in which President Zelensky described a long and meaningful conversation with China's Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping has promised or offered to send a peace delegation to Kiev. And apparently, in the conversation, she pledged that China would remain neutral in the conflict, saying that Beijing, quote, will neither watch the fire from the other side, nor add fuel to the fire, let alone take advantage of the crisis to profit. So what do you make of that?
1: It's a overdue conversation between she and Zelensky. Uh, She is probably the one person in the world who has considerable amount of leverage over Putin at the right time. She might be able to deploy that leverage to convince Putin that it's time to wind down the war. But I don't think we're there yet. I think what we saw today in this phone call was part of what I would call a Chinese charm offensive. Uh, China is a major economic player. Belt and Road Initiative has allowed it to connect to markets around the world. But China has not really yet stepped out onto the global diplomatic stage. It's starting to do that. It brokered a deal not long ago. Between Saudi Arabia and Iran, re-establishing diplomatic relations. Then she shows up in Moscow and has a tete-a-tete with Putin. Now he's on the phone to Zelensky and says we're going to send a peace mission. But I do think that there is a lot more talk than there is substance. That China's 12-point peace plan for Ukraine. Is pretty flimsy. Point number one in that peace plan is respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity. Well, that would suggest that the Chinese should be telling the Russians to get out of Ukraine, but they're not. So at this point, I think the best we can say for the phone call is yeah, talking is better than not talking. I don't think that this significantly advanced the ball when it comes to resolving the war in Ukraine.
0: And do you see any connection with this diplomatic opening or an attempt at an opening by China ahead of the expected Ukrainian counteroffensive? My understanding, Charles, is that the Biden White House and many here on, on our side and possibly in NATO itself are concerned in different ways. One concern being expressed is that they don't think that Ukraine is ready for the counteroffensive and it may not prove that successful. But the other school of thought appears to be that maybe our side doesn't want Ukraine certainly to take Crimea and push Putin to the point where he might do something reckless and dangerous like use nuclear weapons. Is that something that you've heard?
1: Um, I think that the spring offensive is a question of when and not if. Uh, Ukrainians seem to be waiting for further shipments of critical materials, ammunition, tanks, armored personnel vehicles, the other kinds of armor that they would need for a successful breach of Russia's defensive positions. So I, I don't think there's any stopping the offensive, nor do I think that the U.S. or its allies are interested in stopping the offensive. They want Ukraine to try to get back as much territory as possible. That having been said, I don't think that we will see a Ukrainian victory if that means expelling Russia from all of its territory, including Crimea and all of Donbass. I do think that you'll see some progress, some further gains by Ukraine, taking back territory that is currently under Russian occupation. But it's important to keep in mind that it's easier to defend than it is to go on the offense. As we speak in Bakhmut, the Russians are losing a lot more soldiers than the Ukrainians, but that's partly because the Russians are on offense. When the Ukrainians are on offense, they're gonna start losing a good number of troops because the Russians will be dug in behind defensive positions. So yes, some progress. No, I, I don't expect to see a Ukrainian victory. If by some chance we do get to a situation where Ukraine threatens Crimea, where they have a serious chance of taking it back by force, then yes, I do think we have to have a very sober discussion about the possibilities of escalation because were Crimea to go back to Ukraine, were Russia to lose all of its footholds in in Ukraine, I think Putin would be looking at utter strategic defeat and probably a fall from power. Under those circumstances, might he contemplate the use of a nuclear weapon, we'd have to consider that as in the realm of the possible.
0: So, Charles, what explains then how the aid from the West and from the U.S. has sort of dribbled in? It doesn't sound like a lot, particularly when you're trying to mount an offensive. Now, they did have the the 50-member Ukraine contact group meeting, uh, I think, about a week ago. But I think the U.S. is sending 34 Abrams tanks, and that's going to take months, apparently. The Germans and the Spanish are sending Leopard tanks for a huge offensive to push the Russians back, and particularly out of Crimea, Would could take considerable amount of offensive equipment, as you suggested. So I'm just wondering whether, and I understand that the U.S. has been extremely careful not to give the Ukrainians offensive uh, military strike ability to strike deep inside Russia, because you have to admit there's a total asymmetry. The Russians are free to destroy Ukrainian cities at will, and the Ukrainians can't strike back at the at the Russians. So
1: we have been restraining them, have we not, from the beginning? Well, I I don't think it's fair to say that the weapons have been dribbling in. Right, we're we're talking about an American. Budgetary allocation of, I think, around 113 billion. A big chunk of that has been weapons. And so there has been enormous support to Ukraine, and that has enabled Ukraine to defy expectations and effectively blunt the Russian offensive, right? The Russians failed to take even then, they lost 50% of what they took after they went in last February. Uh, has the Biden administration kept an eye on the possibilities of escalation, and therefore not provided high-end aircraft, said no to a no-fly zone, not given them long-range uh, uh, missiles? Yes, uh, and I think that's probably the right thing to do because nobody wants this to turn into to World War III. But uh, there, you know, the other. Issue at play here, Ian, is that there are limits on stockpiles. We have our production lines going at full tilt. When it comes to artillery, we are giving them the tanks as quickly as we can because we need to train them. We need to uh, need to get these these tanks ready. The Leopards have already started to arrive, so it's a pretty impressive effort. To to support Ukraine, uh, even as we have kept an eye on this issue of of escalation. Have we restrained what they have done with U.S. weapons? Yes. We have asked them not to use our weapons to hit Russia proper. The Ukrainians have hit Russia proper using old Soviet-era weapons. They have hit Crimea a few times they took out the Kerch Bridge way back uh, last year with uh, a bomb, a truck bomb, as far as we know. Uh, whether those restraints continue we'll see and it's important to keep in mind that that the bar has moved initially, Biden said no to tanks now those tanks are heading to ukraine
0: so is there then a possibility though, given how surprisingly ineffective uh, the Russian military have been and the strategic and tactical blunders that seem to be happening on a daily basis. Obviously Putin is trying to micromanage things and is not a military guy, apparently. You've got this fratricide between the Ministry of Defense and the Wagner mercenary group led by Prigozhin, which is all rather mysterious, but it's pretty clear. Some bitter infighting going on, so let's just say it's the Russian military looks pretty dysfunctional. What happens if the, it just collapses? It may, right? We've been surprised, haven't we, from day one? Um, we thought they were gonna, they were going to march into Kiev, and every every day it seems more and more as though it's a paper tiger.
1: Has the the Russian military underperformed? You bet. Has Russia been able to reconstitute its core units? No, because a lot of their trained soldiers are now either dead or wounded. They have been able to raise a significant number of new recruits. Several hundred thousand Russians are now in, in eastern Ukraine, and they, they have dug in. There are some analysts who believe, as you just said, Ian, that the Russian forces will collapse. They'll lay down their arms, they're run into the arms of the Ukrainian, they'll try to run, run home. Um, I, I think no, nobody knows the answer to that, but I do think that one needs to keep in mind that we're looking at a war where asymmetries roughly cancel each other out. On the one hand, you have numerical superiority in Russia. A lot more population and therefore a lot more troops. Russia's industrial base is more significant and durable than Ukraine's. And as you just said, Ukraine is getting pounded. Its infrastructure is getting hit. Not true in Russia. On the other hand, the Ukrainians have two advantages that have enabled them to do extremely well. One is they're better fighters and they have morale on their side. They're defending their own land. Russia is on somebody else's land. And two, they have the US and its military industrial complex behind them. Uh, And so that's why I think in the end, Ukraine is going to enjoy a measure of success in this coming offensive. But I do think that in the end of the day, Russia has the numbers. Ukraine has the will and the backing of the West. These are going to cancel them each other out. We're looking at another stalemate sometime at the end of this fighting season, September, October, toward the end of 2023.
0: So where do you think we'll be during the summer of next year when the elections, 2024 elections, will be in full swing?
1: You know, if, if, it were, if it were up to me, if I were advising Team Biden, I would be telling them to ready a plan for a ceasefire and a follow-on set of diplomatic negotiations to be rolled out as this offensive reaches its limits. I think we'll be at a situation in which Ukraine will have given its best shot on the battlefield. Russia will have suffered more grievous losses. It may be conceivable that both sides agree to a ceasefire and pull back their heavy weapons, their troops from the front lines. Uh, If I were Zelensky, I would accept that if Putin were willing to play along, uh, look to negotiations and to the long term to restore Ukraine's territorial integrity at the diplomatic table rather than on the battlefield. You know, if I, I would rather see 88% of Ukraine being rebuilt, prosperous, democratic, moving forward than a country that goes for 100% of Ukraine on the battlefield and remains at war and suffers more death and destruction for the next several years. And from the American political perspective, because you you did ask the question about the presidential election, if I were Biden, I would rather head into 2024 with a ceasefire in Ukraine, his ability to say mission accomplished, yes. We have not yet restored Ukrainian sovereignty, but Ukraine was was able to defeat Russia's attempt to swallow and subjugate it. Let's now uh, move forward on the on the negotiating front. I think he'll be in a better position uh, if that's the case than if he's being attacked by DeSantis, Trump and other America first Republicans for pouring more and more resources into a war that doesn't seem to be going in the necessarily in Ukraine's favor.
0: So in the last couple of minutes then, Charles, going back to the other possibility we discussed earlier, which is that the Russians could collapse, and if there's a kind of a blitzkrieg on the part of the Ukrainians, and they're certainly going to move south. I think that's pretty much where their offensive will be, if they were to take Crimea, and that would be massive humiliation for Putin. Putin doesn't appear to be interested in, in any kind of negotiation. He thinks he can win win in the long term. But at the point where he's either facing rebellion at home and humiliation abroad, the fear is that he might turn to nuclear weapons. And what came out of the conversation today, apparently, between China's President Xi Jinping and Ukraine's President Zelensky was that she told the Ukrainian leader, negotiations is the only viable way out. There is no winner in a nuclear war. And then he went on to say, when dealing with the nuclear issue, all parties concerned should remain calm and restrained, truly focus on the future and destiny of themselves and all mankind, and jointly manage and control the crisis. So, I mean, that's... It's a kind of dialogue that people around the world again have look at China as the peacemaker aren't they?
1: Well the Chinese the Indians and others even though they have not condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine have been quite explicit uh, warning the Russians not to use nuclear weapons and I think those are those are sincere warnings and I think one of the reasons that, Russia would be quite unlikely to use nuclear weapons in any scenario is that they may lose the support of the Chinese, uh, the Indians and others that have been on their side, or at least not willing to impose sanctions and condemn the the Russian invasion. Uh, I also think that that from the Russian perspective. Using nuclear weapons and risking a wider war does not make a lot of sense, right? The Russians are having a hard enough time defeating Ukraine. Do they really want to fight Ukraine plus 31 NATO members, including Finland, with just joined the alliance? So it doesn't make a lot of sense from, uh, from Russia's perspective to deliberately escalate. That having been said, I agree with you that Putin probably could not survive the loss of Crimea, if the war heads in that direction, if Russian troops collapse, I think you'll see a very chaotic situation inside Russia. Uh, I'm not very confident that we're headed in that direction. I think we're probably headed towards stalemate. One other aspect of this that that I'll, I'll mention since since this, is, this call started with a chat about Zelensky talking to Xi, she did say, as you quoted at the beginning, we're not going to pour fuel on the flames. Was that a cryptic way of saying, I'm not going to send arms to Russia? I don't know. But it's a very important issue because Putin right now uh, is holding his own without the help of China. Let's say he does start to lose. What would she do? She has to some extent attached his own future to Putin. And so one thing one issue to keep an eye on as this offensive goes forward, if the Ukrainians indeed do well, will the Chinese arm the Russians? So far they haven't. We've heard warnings that they might, but it's something we need to keep an eye on because if that does happen, then I think it it turns this into a wider, uh, a wider uh, clash between uh, the West and the East, and dramatically intensifies tensions between China and the United States.
0: Charles Kupchin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've be speaking with Charles Kupchin, who was director for European affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as special assistant to President Obama for national security. And he is the author of How Enemies Become Friends, The Source of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the civil case in the Manhattan Federal Court where Donald Trump is being sued by Eugene Carroll, who claimed he raped her in a dressing room in Bergdorf Goodman's lingerie department in 1996.
2: Then someone says you're in the wrong place, my friend You'd better leave And the only sound that's low. After the ambulances go, it's Cinderella sweeping up on Desolation Road.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Deborah Turkheimer who is a professor of law at Northwestern University School of Law and a former assistant district attorney in Manhattan. She teaches and writes in the area of criminal law and feminist legal theory, and she is the co-author of the casebook *Feminist Jurisprudence: Cases and Materials*, and the author of numerous articles on rape and domestic violence. Her latest book is *Credible: Why We Should Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers*. And she has an article at the New York Times: *The Importance of E. Jean Carroll's Lawsuit Against Donald Trump*. Welcome to Background Briefing, Deborah Turkheimer.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Deborah, and. Today in uh, federal court in Manhattan, E. Jean Carroll testified in the case accusing Donald Trump of rape, and uh, she said, I'm here because Donald Trump raped me, and when I wrote about it, he said it didn't happen. He lied and shattered my reputation, and I'm here to try and get it back. And then she actually described uh, the whole encounter. So it was pretty powerful testimony, wasn't, was it not?
3: It sounds like it was very powerful testimony. The description from those in the courtroom suggests that jurors were riveted. Uh, They couldn't take their eyes off of her while she provided this account. Um, And I'm I'm sure that it it was a a, a very dramatic moment. These are difficult things to talk about in any case, but particularly when you're in the middle of a courtroom and you're describing to a a jury what happened, it's, it's difficult.
0: But she recounted something that happened uh, on a Thursday evening in the spring of 1996, 30 years ago, but according to reports that I've read, she did so with incredible clarity. She described how she was at Bergdorf Goodman's uh, luxury department store, and then she came through the door and ran into Donald Trump in the revolving door, and he said, hey, you are the advice lady, and then she shot back, hey, you are the real estate tycoon, and then he asked her to select a gift for a female friend, and she said, i love to give advice. And they were Donald Trump asking me to advise him about buying a present. So they went up to the lingerie department, and she picked out something for him. And he asked her to put it on, and she said no. And then they were apparently joking and jostling and jesting. And then he went into a dressing room and beckoned her in, and she went in somewhat puzzled. And then before long, he shoved her up against the door and raped her. And she said, I've had lifelong consequences. It left me unable to ever have a romantic life again. So I take it from the work that you do, Deborah, this is not uncommon, right?
3: That's right. Um, As much as this case is extraordinary in certain respects, um, of course, the fact that Donald Trump is uh, is the one who is the defendant here and he's the one being accused of this um and that is unusual to have a former president uh in in the midst of a civil trial like this Uh, much of what eugene carroll is describing is depressingly ordinary and you know sexual assault and um allegations that come out many years after the incident that's alleged, well, this happens all the time.
0: But what's different, I think, in this case, isn't it, that it's being tried under a new Adult Survivors Act, a New York law signed by Governor Kathy Hochul in May of 2022,
3: right? That's right. This is different. This is a law that allows survivors to sue um, even after many years or even decades have passed. This is a one-year look-back window. Uh, the window opened in November 22, and Eugene Carroll uh, filed her lawsuit soon, soon after that. Um, it, it'll close in November 23. Um, but again, if someone was over the age of 18 at the time of the alleged assault, um, this New York law allows that person to to file a civil suit, and that's what's happening here.
0: And have they been able to play the Access Hollywood videotape, in which which surfaced, of course, in 2016 during the presidential campaign, in which Trump brags that when you're a star, you get to do you can do anything, including grab a woman by the genitals? Has that been admitted in this trial?
3: Not yet, but I expect it will be. The judge issued um, a set of preliminary rulings involving what evidence could and could not be heard by the jury. Um, and that, that tape is, is allowed as evidence. And so we should expect that to, uh, to, to, to come into the courtroom in the coming days.
0: Well, already the federal judge in overseeing the trial, Lewis Kaplan, He's been very critical of Trump for making statements on Truth Social. He's asked him through his lawyer Joseph Tucapina, the the character who, to my mind, looks somewhat like a mafia lawyer, but he's quite quite aggressive. He's asked him to do something about it, and then today Donald Trump even ignored that advice and posted more attacks on Eugene Carroll, which really upset the judge. And, and he more or less said to, to Trump's lawyer, Joseph DiCapino, that he'd better <laughs> shut him up or uh, maybe I get, he didn't say anything but suggested that maybe contempt charges were, were in the offing. Uh, what are your takeaway from that, Deborah?
3: Yeah, the judge is concerned that these uh, these efforts may, I think, reach the jury and maybe efforts to influence the jury's deliberations. And so I, I think the, the judge has made very clear in court that it falls to uh, Donald Trump's lawyer to uh, to ensure that these kinds of posts um, stop and, and stop now.
0: So what happens then if Trump can't control himself, which apparently appears to be a problem he has?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he, he runs the risk of being held in contempt of court. And, of course, that would be a new, <laughs> a new legal problem for him. So, uh, you know, I, I can imagine that his lawyer will do everything possible to, to, to get Trump to, to stop making these posts.
0: But the judge has said that he's been trying to find out whether Trump would testify mm-hmm. in person. And he's morally saying he's been strung along. And he wants an answer this week because he, uh, because of the uncertainty is an imposition on the court's security and staff. So how much is that in the offing that he might show up or might be forced to show up? Or if he continues with his true social outbursts against Eugene Carroll, maybe he'll get a, temp cit- a contempt citation.
3: I think it's unlikely that that Trump shows up to court to testify, um, and and at the same time, along with everyone else, I, I I think he's unpredictable, and and we we will not know for certain what he decides to do in this case until uh, the, the closing arguments begin and until the the evidence is is finished. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how um, how aggressive Judge Kaplan is in kind of pinning Trump's lawyers down on this question of whether he's going he's to come to court or not. There is this uh, concern about security and the need to prepare if he's coming to court. Uh, and at the same time, his lawyers obviously want to keep everyone on their toes, um, including but not limited to Eugene Carroll and her legal team.
0: But the judge also was annoyed because he said that for three years he's been trying to get Trump to provide a DNA sample. Apparently, Eugene Carroll has preserved some genetic material found on the dress that she wore during the encounter with Trump in the dressing room.
3: Yeah, this was a very protracted back and forth between the two sides. Um, Trump wouldn't provide the, the sample and was fighting efforts, and then really at the 11th hour, um, sort of offered to, to go ahead and, and, and give the sample. And at that point, I think the position of E. Jean Carroll's lawyers was that it was too late and it was time to go to trial. And uh, Judge Kaplan took that view as well.
0: So turning to your article at the New York Times, Deborah Turkheimer, the importance of E. Jean Carroll's lawsuit against Trump. Fundamentally, why do you think this is important?
3: I think it's important because to to many women and and to survivors of, of all sorts of abuse and, you know, to those who care about these issues, Trump really is viewed as the embodiment of sexual entitlement and the power that he has, the wealth that he has. Um, those are the, the kinds of um, privileges that have, for so long, protected abusers and have have made it nearly impossible for victims to uh, to to seek accountability to get any kind of justice. And so, you know, this case, as much as it matters what happens to e. Jean Carroll, as much as, of course, we're interested in what happens to Donald Trump, I think it stands in for something. That's, that's even larger and that the Me Too movement is, is really aiming to get at, which is this culture of impunity for powerful, powerful men. And
0: do you think there's been a change in the zeitgeist, in the, in the public's attitudes towards these kind of excesses? It seems to me that the Epstein case really opened a lot of people's eyes about the idea that there's kind of a network of entitled men abusing young women. And then we've had all of these Me Too cases with, you know, the Hollywood tycoons and others falling into disrepute. And and in the case of Weinstein, you know, spending a lot of time in jail, all the rest of his life in jail. So having worked in the trenches as an assistant district attorney in Manhattan, Dealing with these kind of rape and domestic violence cases, do you detect a change in the zeitgeist?
3: I, I do. I mean, I was in the I was in the DA's office back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and you know, surely there's been, I think, progress in the way that we, as a society, think about these issues, talk about these issues. Uh, what's interesting is that E. Jean Carroll credits the Me Too movement with um, empowering her to to come forward with her allegations in this case, and uh, she's been very clear about the fact that um, she felt more able to make these allegations publicly than she did at the time of the alleged incident. And I and I think that that speaks to the power of this movement. I think that speaks to the way in which the kind of collective outpouring has really made a big difference. And yet we have a lot of work uh, still to be done in this, in this area. We still, I think are. um, trying to come up with a response that that feels right we're still trying to impose consequences and i'm not sure well in fact i am sure that we're not where we need to be in terms of that accountability piece we're getting closer to where to where we ought to be and the the fact that more um survivors and victims are willing to tell their stories is is surely a mark of progress but it's incomplete
0: so you ha- you have a federal district judge, Lewis Kaplan, telling the jury that they have to resolve this case, which he described as a he said, she said case. At the end of the day, what kind of resolution, what kind of penalties could emerge from this mm-hmm. case? I mean, in mm-hmm. other words, it's a civil case, not a criminal That's case. That's
3: exactly right? right. That's exactly right. So what's at issue here um, at least on the face of it, is damages. That's it. Um, Trump, if he loses, um, will have to pay some amount of money to E. Jean Carroll. Um, but it, and that is very different, as you point out, from a, a criminal sanction, a criminal penalty. Um, and and we normally associate these kinds of allegations with, with criminal prosecution. But there are all sorts of accountability. And I think for E. Jean Carroll and for many... Uh, survivors, you know, civil justice and this kind of recourse is important in its own way. So that's, that's what we'll wait to see, whether this uh, jury resolves the case in her favor or, or in his, knowing that what's at stake um, is damages, and then all of the expressive value that, that, that may come along with that if she prevails.
0: Well, Deborah Turkheim, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
0: Well, thank you, Deborah. And again, I've been speaking with Deborah Turkheimer, who is a professor of law at Northwestern University School of Law and a former assistant district attorney in Manhattan. She teaches and writes in the areas of criminal law and feminist legal theory. And she is co author of the casebook Feminist Jurisprudence Cases and Materials, and the author of numerous articles on rape and domestic violence. Her latest book is Credible Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. And she has an article at the New York Times, The Importance of E. Jean Carroll's Lawsuit Against Donald Trump. We're going to take a restation break and back examining yesterday's summit involving 20 countries in Bogota, Colombia, aimed at finding a way out of the deterioration of Venezuela into a failed authoritarian state from which 7 million Venezuelan refugees have fled, many into Colombia. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Smildy, who's a professor of human relations at Tulane University, program co-chair at the Latin American Studies Association, and senior fellow at the Washington Office of Latin America, where he specializes in Venezuela and moderates their Venezuelan politics and human rights blog. He has researched Venezuela for the past 30 years, living there most of that time. And he is the co-author of the forthcoming book, The Paradox of Violence in Venezuela, Revolution, Crime and Policing During Chavismo. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Smildy.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, David. And what do you make of this, uh, I guess, a somewhat humiliating uh, trip that the Venezuelan opposition leader, Juan Guaidó, made? He apparently entered Colombia on foot without a visa and tried to attend uh, this Latin American summit on Venezuela, hosted by the new Colombian president. And he claims, Wido claims, that he was uh, sort of shut out and rebuffed and uh, essentially kicked out of the country. So what do you make of that?
4: Well, uh, I'm not sure if it was actually unsuccessful, because I think part of the idea was precisely to have something like that happen, because you know, a little background is important here. This, this whole summit, the idea was to have countries that are interested in Venezuela or, you know, friends of Venezuela come together to discuss and try to revive the negotiation process. And to have this happen, the Colombian government uh, basically said, well, the opposition and the government, the Maduro government couldn't go, that wouldn't make sense, but they would consult with them, get their opinions first beforehand. And so the process with the opposition happened on Saturday and the the unit what's called the unitary platform, which is the opposition coalition that includes the main parties, was invited and went. However, there was a very notable absence, and that was of the Popular Will Party, which is the Guaido uh, Party, no, the Party of Huaydó and Leopoldo Lopez. And uh, they were not at the table and there was no explanation. And and many of us when that are sort of close Venezuela watchers, when we saw that. We thought something was up, you know, something is going on that they're going to try to sort of complicate this summit and sure enough on Monday morning, suddenly Guaido uh, appears in Colombia saying that he has sought refuge in Colombia and wants to talk to the international delegations that have, uh, you know, that are that were arriving that day. And so when uh, the Colombian government basically said, well, that's not part of the program. And, you know, you entered illegally. I'm sorry, you're going to have to leave. Um, that was, you know, it sort of made him into a victim and allowed gave a platform for the popular will party to say, you know, there, no solution can come from Colombia. Colombia is on the side of Maduro. And, you know, to try and sort of distract and complicate this this whole summit. So I kind of think that was the intention in the first place, and and I think it, it worked out pretty well for them because they, it got a lot of echo from a lot of their international allies.
0: So what kind of percentage of the opposition? In other words, are you suggesting, David, that Maduro sent the kind of token opposition as opposed to the real opposition to these talks, or did the New no. Colombian leader invite no. Token opposition as opposed to the real no. opposition.
4: No, that that's not what I'm suggesting. That 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 is essentially what Juan Paido is suggesting. You no, know, and the sort of the 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 most right parts of the coalition say that. But the, the unitary platform is actually sort of the core opposition parties. And the Popular Will Party is actually part of that unitary platform, and its official position is is to be in favor of negotiations, in favor of this whole process. But it's very clear that this process doesn't really favor them, no, uh, in 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 the future. And so, what I'm saying is that no, I think I think it was actually the core opposition that went, and it was the Popular Will Party that it was trying to complicate uh, this summit.
0: So this meeting in Bogota that's underway, right, hosted by Colombian President Gustavo Petro, is supported by the United States. Former Senator Chris Dodd is there representing the Biden uh, White House, yeah, and you've got Spain and the UK, Argentina, Brazil, and others there. So when you think about how Guaido was built up as the great white hope, if you will, dozens of countries around the world supported him. and and said he was a legitimate leader, not Maduro. And he, will, he also showed up invited at the State of the Union address during the Trump administration. So is this a case of this guy's sort of falling out of uh, grace?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think him as as well as his party. I mean there's a there's a lot of complicated politics behind this. But what happened in 2019, he was president of the National Assembly. And he actually part of a party that's sort of a distant fourth within the opposition coalition. But he was he was the president at that time and he's the one that assumed this this interim presidency. And so he was the face of the opposition, you no, know, during that big push that the US supported and and many uh, uh you know countries around the world supported but after after a year or two it was pretty clear that that was not going to work and nevertheless this party of course had been punching above its weight for a couple of years and and did not want to let go of this possibility and so they they continued on with this figure of the interim government with Guido as interim president until December and in December finally the rest of the opposition said well this is enough and they voted against Continuing that figure of the interim government and the interim president. And so, but, you know, as it works out, this, this party that spent four years basically at the helm of the opposition is now just another part of the opposition. It's not even a leading part of the opposition. And so, you know, it's, its uh, fortunes have declined. And, you know, it also, I think, you know, it it does not believe that negotiation with Maduro is going to bear fruit. It believes that uh, more pressure and more sanctions are going to get Maduro to buckle and, and that's the best way forward. And so, um, you know, they have been sort of spoilers throughout this negotiation process and the attempt to sort of uh, rebuild Venezuela's as well as democratic institutions. And so this is just, this is pretty, this is the continuous. which not, hasn't been like a sudden fall from grace. It's been a, a slow sort of uh, movement from the center back to sort of their, their original place, which is sort of as a, a fourth party in the opposition.
0: Well, you know, you have an example of a country like Zimbabwe run by a kleptocrat and a thug uh, for the longest time, and then he was replaced when he died in his 90s by the guy that was his (laughs) killer, really. He fed his opposition to the crocodiles. He had the nickname Crocodile. He's now running the place. But the point is that if you run a dictatorship, and I'm not suggesting that the Venezuelan dictatorship is as bad as the Zimbabwean, but the point is that these guys can stay in power for a long time because they just wear the people down. And when you have 7 million Venezuelans f- fleeing the country, which is impacting Colombia and i sure that's why the Colombians want to try and solve this problem. Is that an issue here? In other words, that Maduro staying in power obviously he's got the help of the cubans and the russians and the chinese except and the iranians but is it because you know the place is just so destitute that people are scrambling around for food and medicine and they don't have time for revolution
4: yeah i mean i think you know uh Uh, this is exactly sort of the danger is that maduro uh, in people in his circumstances on the one hand they have this ideology this sort of non-pluralist revolutionary ideology that they are the ones that you know, could represent the people and, and uh, uh, you know, should lead Venezuela for the foreseeable future. No real understanding or, or sense that, okay, well, we have a democracy and we have to, you know, alternate in power. So they, they have that. They also have, you know, many, perhaps most people in the government are corrupt in some ways. They have very high exit costs. And so it is a very dire situation. Or For them, there's not a lot of motivation to change. You no, know? and on the other hand, as you mentioned, especially since, since about 2017, the progressive decline, Really, 2015, the decline—you know—the collapse of the economy, first because of mismanagement and corruption, and then further complicated later by sanctions—has meant that many, many people, you know, it's just not viable to stay and fight. It's what, what it is, what you do is you got to, you know, look after your family. And, and so, as you say, seven million people have left, which is, you know, uh, an amazing about 20 percent of the population uh, has left. And so, all of that has strengthened Maduro. You no, know? I think Maduro's. Still isn't, um, for example, at the stage of Daniel Ortega, you no. Know, and they still they still identify themselves as democratic. They really want international recognition. They want a better economy. I think what they you know what they would like is, of course, they want to stay in power. But they would like to stay in power and be internationally recognized. And to do that, you know, they need to try and win uh, an election that's relatively fair. To do that, they're going to need to. Um, Uh, you know, improve the economy because the economy is really. You know, after a couple of years of, of modest growth, the economy is, is contracting again. And and that's gonna really complicate that plan. So so that provides an opportunity. It provides an opportunity uh to use those sanctions, you know, and sanctions relief to to open up some democratic spaces. No, there, there's not gonna be a transition like people thought in 2019 that you know Maduro suddenly could get, get on a plane and, and seek an island refuge. But there could be openings of democratic spaces, there could be elections that uh, are relatively fair. And that, you know, uh, could provide up, you know, uh, provide the opportunity to sort of diversify the public authority, perhaps even win the presidency for the opposition. And so that's, that's what's, you know, at play. And that's what's, you know, being worked towards. Of course, there's nothing preventing Maduro from taking the strategy of Daniel Ortega and just closing off Everything and jailing every opposition candidate. No, that that's also a possibility, and surely there are people within his coalition that are pushing that direction as well.
0: So, what's the story then with the new Colombian uh, president Gustavo Petro? He's been described as a leftist. He doesn't necessarily have sympathy for Maduro, does he? Because his country is being impacted by a you know a flood of
4: refugees. Yeah, you know he um, he is a leftist, absolutely um and so uh you know he has that he's been he's been to venezuela about three times now since he started less than a year ago you know venezuela is its border country it's sort of sister country uh and so there's there's a lot at stake there and he's been quite open to maduro but he's but he's he's done some really quite interesting things you know he's made statements suggesting that revolution without Liberal liberalism leads to authoritarianism, which is exactly what's happened in Venezuela. He's also been urging Venezuela to rejoin the um, the Inter American in, uh, Human Rights System, you know, which which would be a big. Deal because it would mean that Venezuela would have to meet certain thresholds in terms of human rights, uh, and so and Maduro apparently is thinking about it. But you know that's a pretty big deal, and he's tried to, you know, re- reinvigorate this negotiation process. Now, of course, Petro's main sort of policy or main focus is what he calls total peace. Within Colombia and the disarmament of the rest of the guerrilla fighters, such as the ELN faction, many of which are in Venezuela, so he requires Maduro's uh, uh, cooperation to actually achieve his goals. On the other hand, for Colombia, you know, uh, Petro inherits. A relationship with the United States, which is extremely important for Colombia. And in fact, just last week, Petro had a meeting in the Oval Office with with uh, Biden and and his team, and and it uh, you know so that's really important, and that's as important or more important than his relationship with. Venezuela. So th- this all means, in, in, in I, and I think that Petro being president of, of Colombia is probably the most interesting thing happening in, in, a, in an otherwise somewhat dire situation. You no, know? and I think it's 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 it's, it's the sort of opportunity uh, right now. And I think this is why this this summit was able to attract 19 countries and the EU sent delegations. And so, which is pretty impressive when you think that interest in Venezuela has been declining internationally, as everyone's been focusing on Ukraine and other hotspots, but they, they, they got high-level delegations from 19 countries and the EU, and, and so I think that sort of is revealing of how much hope there is that, that Gustavo Petro could actually make an impact here.
0: Well the Biden administration have granted the Chevron Corporation a license to uh, operate in Venezuela but I can't see how how can you make a deal how can these 19 countries meeting next door in Colombia make a deal with Maduro because he doesn't want to go away and he doesn't want to change his authoritarian ways why well, should he
4: you know the this summit is not really a negotiation uh, with Venezuela. It basically, right, what he's it's, not it's, there, right? Uh, yeah, he's not there, and the opposition's not there. Basically, what it is is countries coming up with a common diagnosis and sort of providing, uh, uh, you know, support for the negotiation process. And so this this summit happened yesterday. You no, know, it was just basically one afternoon, and they came out. The Colombian Foreign Ministry came out with a declaration that they said was sort of consensual points, but it was, you know, published without really even a masthead or anybody signing it. And, you know, from what insider suggests is that, you know, it wasn't so much that there were disagreements among the participants, but that the Colombian uh, foreign policy team, you know, was somewhat in disarray and wasn't very well organized. And usually for a summit like this to make progress, there's got to be diplomatic work happening beforehand that people can study the points. They're not just going to come talk for a couple hours and sign off. No, they have to actually go through these things. And so none of that happened. There was hardly even an agenda before they met. And part of it is, is problems internal to the Petro administration. And if you've noticed that you know, last night, he basically asked all of his ministers for um, their resignation to sort of re reestablish his team. Now, that didn't really have to do with this, this conference but, or this summit. But it, it just sort of goes to show that they had their minds somewhere else. And they, you know they, they, they pulled off a real achievement in getting this together. But I think the actual result was was sort of modest. I think the, the, the summit sort of underperformed. It, it's a result nonetheless, but they came out with a, you know a declaration that uh, puts forward you know three points, you know that, that basically suggests that they need uh, an electoral timetable. Know that they that along with achievements in in improving the electoral sort of institutions, there should be lifting of progressive lifting of sanctions and urging the parts to uh, go back to Mexico to negotiate, including uh, you know uh, telling the United States that the U.S. really needs to try and get this uh, the money to the uh, social fund that was agreed upon in November, which I can tell you more about. But um, uh, you know, so they, they came up with a declaration and uh and that was positive i think it you know it helps it certainly provides more pressure on maduro to come back to the table because it's maduro government that stood up and uh, uh but you know overall it was a little bit disappointing that you know this tremendous effort that they had made didn't come up with a more robust declaration signed by all the delegations
0: so it sounds like a bit of a flash in the pan i thought it was still going on but if not and lasted a day, and it wasn't properly planned. And at the same time, the new president of Colombia is asking all of his ministers to, to resign. Yeah. yeah, it's not very reassuring, is it? Um, no,
4: no, that's not very reassuring. I mean, how how it all ended was not not very reassuring. They said, oh, that they're asking, you know, that the that the, they're going to have call a second meeting soon. No, I don't know if they're going to be able to sort of repeat this and get you know twenty high level delegations. There again, when when the you know what was achieved in this round was was quite modest, and so um, but we'll see we'll see you know it, it it was an achievement it was a modest achievement but an achievement nonetheless. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, the petro government, you know, now already I've, I've seen, I haven't looked through it, but he sort of renamed his cabinet or reshuffled his cabinet. Um, but there's, you know, a lot of complicated things going on in Colombia that, you know, go beyond Venezuela. And and I think they're a bit distracted. And so in some ways, it was kind of an opportunity that uh, wasn't fully advanced, a, a modest achievement that could have been much more important.
0: Well, David smaldy I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Smilder. He's a professor of human relations at Tulane University, program co-chair at the Latin American Studies Association and senior fellow at the Washington Office of Latin America, where he specializes in Venezuela and moderates their Venezuelan politics and human rights blog. He has researched Venezuela for the past 30 years, living there most of that time, and he is the co-author of the forthcoming book The Paradox of Violence in Venezuela, Revolution, Crime, and Policing During Chavismo. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives... And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.